Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Gabe loves his wife, Sierra. But if Gabe is being honest, it's harder to love Sierra than it used to be. Gabe and Sierra were the popular kids in high school. Prom king, prom queen. Everyone expected them to get into a relationship, and so they did. At some point in high school, both of them attended a local high school ministry outreach, and they both came to Christ. They had people invest in them. They got plugged into the local church. So they were growing in their relationship with Christ, with each other. To Gabe, it just felt like such a natural thing. It was so easy to talk to Sierra. He always wanted to spend time with her. Things got a little bit bumpy in college, but they made it through. There were one or two times where they broke off the relationship. Gabe dated a few other people, but he always came back to Sierra. And so finally, by the end of college, they graduate expecting we're going to be married. It took a little while longer than Sierra expected for Gabe to finally pop the question, but he did, and they were married. The first years of marriage for Gabe and Sierra were very good. They were in a good church, and every teaching they could get a hold of, whether it was Sunday schools or the sermon or conferences that had to do with marriage, they ate it up. And they applied it, and it really helped them. They were on an excellent trajectory in their marriage. But then, you know, time goes on. And two children later, Sierra started to notice that Gabe was not as excited about date nights as he used to be. Both of them were tired. The time they had just together, alone, was very limited. There was nothing major, no major conflict, just more small conflicts. And less big, enjoyable times together as time wore on. Fight a little more, enjoy their time a little less. Sierra thought, well, this is the normal wear and tear of marriage. Wasn't wrong, but what Sierra didn't know something that really only Gabe knew, no one else, and that was that at work, there was a new young female coworker, and Gabe, very slowly, almost imperceptibly, began to develop a bit of an attachment to her. He'd noticed her the moment she started working there where he worked, but it was only as things got more difficult at home that he started to let his heart wander a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. He used to check it, stop it. He did that a little less frequently. He never told her. He never told Sierra. He never told anyone. But he knew in his heart that something was happening that years before he never would have imagined, never would have thought possible when he and Sierra were doing well and growing. But he was giving a little leeway at a time. He was developing an attachment that he knew God forbid. He knew was wrong. This female coworker, it seemed to him, was a little friendlier to him than to anyone else in the office. This got his hopes up. And so Gabe let his heart slowly crawl into something it never should crawl toward. He felt like his own life, his own marriage, church, God, these things were okay. But now he was allowing his heart to entertain a notion that to him seemed vibrant, lively, a new excitement. 
And so there he was at a sort of fork in the road. And he knew he had a choice. He knew he either could cut this off, which was what God wanted him to do and what he should do and what Christ would call him to do. Or he could allow his heart to continue crawling in the direction it was crawling. To be honest, Gabe's not sure which of the directions he's going to go. He's not sure, and he isn't sure he can be unsure about it very much longer. The question we're asking today is, is there hope for Gabe? The answer that this question gives for Gabe, and for every fictional person we put together here, and for all of us, is that there is hope. There's hope for the real-life temptations and difficulties and suffering and pain that we experience in life, the questions that we encounter, there's hope on Wednesday when we're living our lives. And this hope is based not in 10 steps to a better you, but this hope is based in who God is. Your knowledge of and your clinging to who God is is the basis for you living a good, holy, righteous life with hope keeping your eyes fixed on Christ and enjoying him. It's the hope for your marriage. If you're single, it's also the hope for the integrity you have as a single person, but it's based on who God is. So that's why we're going through the attributes of God. Attributes, as you remember, are simply things that are true about God. And the one attribute that we want to consider today is what we call the knowledge of God. So as in every class, as we get started here, we're going to begin by looking at the knowledge of God. Then at the end, very briefly, we want to turn and consider how that affects your integrity as a person and a Christian, if you believe that. And then we'll come back to Gabe to finish off. So here, let's begin looking at what the Bible teaches about the knowledge of God. And I want to start with a definition, just like we always do. This very simplest definition of the knowledge of God, actually we're going to encounter it in 1 John when we get to chapter 3. It's 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 says, God, quote, knows everything, <laughs> end quote. So that's simple. So you can think of the knowledge of God as God knows everything. That's a true definition. Let me give you a little bit of a fuller definition that... I'm drawing from Wayne Grudem only because Grudem is a very clear thinker and simple. So Grudem gives this definition of God's knowledge. Quote, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one Simple and eternal act. And we'll talk about all the parts of that definition. That's a very good definition. It does include a lot of the parts of what we're going to be talking about. Now, just so you know, some of you, when we talk about the knowledge of God, are maybe more familiar with the term, although it's a difficult term, omniscience, omniscience. So we have the O-M-N-I prefix, which means all, omni, all. So God's power, omnipotence, it's all power. Here we have omniscience. The shince part of it is just spelled like the word science. Because science, in its etymology, where it comes from, science just means knowledge, ultimately. So if you put omni with science and you get omniscience, it just means that God has all knowledge. So... You may hear the word omniscience, just know it just means all knowledge of God. So we're speaking of God's all knowledge or we're speaking of his omniscience. 
Let me start here with just some biblical proof. I've already given you one piece in 1 John 3.20. doesn't get simpler than that. God knows everything. Here's a few other pieces. This is Elihu in Job 37.16. He refers to God as one who is, quote, perfect in knowledge. So that's also simple. All knowledge. Perfect, meaning it's all there. He's got all the knowledge. Tozer references this. To say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge. All knowledge, perfect knowledge, omniscience, these are all the same. Just means God knows everything. Here's one more. This is the New Testament now. The disciple, or I believe the disciples speaking to Jesus in John 16, 30, they say to Jesus, now we know that you know all things. And don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, there is some question when it comes to Jesus' knowledge. And some of you may be thinking of that. Did Jesus know everything? We're not going to dive into that question. The brief answer is that Jesus, as a man, because he had two natures. So as a man, he did not know everything. He said, not even the Son of Man knows the day or hour of my return. So as a man, as a human, did not know everything. But as God, considered as God, Jesus knew and knows absolutely everything. And that's what they say. We know that you know all things. So there's the simple definition. There's the fuller definition. There's the biblical evidence. So let's now take a few minutes and dig a little bit more into this. What does it mean that God knows everything? And how does the Bible support that? I want to start by talking about something that you may never have thought about before, and that is completely fine. But I think when you think a little bit about it, you'll realize that it's self-evidently true, even if we don't always think this way. You'll notice that Grudem's definition begins by saying that God knows himself. <laughs> so when we think of God knowing everything, usually we're thinking the hairs on our head or what, what we're doing today or our difficulties, and that's true. But that doesn't come till the second part of his definition. The first part is that God knows himself. Now, you might not ever have thought of God knowing himself. Why do we even talk about God knowing himself? Actually, in reference to God, that's incredibly important. Here's the reason why, and I want to give it to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is verses 10 and 11. It's talking about the Holy Spirit of God, who is God. And Paul says, quote, the Spirit searches everything. God's Spirit, God, searches everything, even the depths of God. And if you want to lay in your bed and be lost in contemplation, what are the depths of God? They're deeper than you could ever imagine. You cannot search them. Part of our struggle as Christians sometimes is we're trying to search the depths of God when he allows difficulty in our life or otherwise. But it does say there is one who can search the depths of God, and that is the Spirit of God. Paul continues, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? I don't, I don't ultimately know your thoughts. I can't read them. The only person who knows your thoughts is you. And he compares that with God. He says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2 is that God knows himself. He knows the depths of God. 
The Spirit searches even the depths of God, and then he defines that as the thoughts of God. God knows his own thoughts. Say, Paul, why say that? That seems very, obviously God knows his own thoughts. Well, in reference to God, this is actually very important. Because if you get nothing else from this class, maybe this is the point you want to take away. If God fully knows himself, then he knows everything. If God fully knows himself, then he knows everything. Consider everything with me for a second, just that very narrow subject of everything that exists. And it's broken into two parts. There is God, and then there is everything that's not God. We will call that creation, because whatever is not God was, by definition, created by God. So there's God, and there's creation. There's nothing else, right? What other category would there be? So there's nothing else. There's God, and then there's creation that God has made. Now, what we're saying and what Paul says here is that God knows already one of these subjects. God knows God. Completely, he knows himself. What about creation then? That's the only thing left for God to know is creation. Where does creation come from? Creation comes from God himself. And we know from Scripture that the way God brings creation into being, it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like God was living in eternity and then suddenly decides, I think I want to make stuff. It wasn't like that. It wasn't God lonely and then he makes stuff to be not lonely. It wasn't like that either. God has what we call an eternal decree. A lot of this is mystery to us. It's the depths of God that we can't fully search out. But it is taught in Scripture that God works all things according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Ephesians 1 talks about God's eternal purpose that he brings about in Christ. So God has an eternal purpose. Over and over in Scripture, we're told when God acts in any way, creation or otherwise, it was planned beforehand. It was not an accident. You see a shadow of this in Jesus' own life as he's moving toward the cross, and especially in the Gospel of John, but at any of the Gospel accounts, the thing that strikes you almost most strongly as Jesus moves toward his death is how everything seems planned. He knows what's coming. He talks about what's coming. Three times on his way there, he tells his disciples, pulls them aside and says, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, and this is exactly what's going to happen. They're going to arrest me. They're going to hand me over to the Romans. They're going to crucify me. Three days, I'm going to rise again. (laughs) So then they arrest him, and the disciples are like, how did this happen? (laughs) That's how we are too sometimes. But you see, even in that, a shadow of how when God acts, it's not an afterthought. With you and me, we react to things. God never reacts. God has planned all that comes to pass. How that works with the existence of sin and evil, of course, is a difficult question, part of the depths of God, but we cannot deny the fact that God has decreed, in some sense, all that comes to pass, like the Westminster Catechism says, this confession, that's true. He's decreed it. It just means God has a plan, and he brings it about. Now, if you ask the question, well, when did God plan creation? Say, well, was it, you know, 100 years before time began? (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) Before creation? It was eternally. Ephesians says his eternal purpose. It was eternally. So if God eternally, as part of his own thoughts, had the plan or blueprint for all of creation, then for God at any point, to know himself, to know his own thoughts, 1 Corinthians 2, is also for God to fully know all creation. 
Does that make sense? It's because creation already existed in God's mind as a plan, as a thought. Nothing was a surprise to him. You yourself existed in God's mind as a thought even before you existed as a being. You existed as a thought. So, if God knows himself, then it follows logically that God knows everything that is or can be. He knows God. He knows creation, which he had planned, which was part of his thoughts. Here's Augustine, if you want it a little more confusing. <laughs> Augustine was a brilliant church father in the 300s, 400s. Um, but he said this even back then. He said, quote, It's true of all God's creatures, both spiritual and corporeal, that's angels and us, that God does not know them because they are. So it's not God looking at you and counting your hairs, and now he knows how many hairs you have. But that they are because he knows them. It's God's eternal knowing, his eternal purpose. That's what brings about the creatures existing in the first place, not the other way around. For you and me, we learn things by looking at it, okay, and now we know. But it's not that way with God. He knows before there's anything to look at. He was not, Augustine says, he was not ignorant of what he was going to create. So he created because he knew he did not know because he had created. <laughs> it's easy to get lost in Augustine's language. He was a smart guy. But the point of this is simply what I said. When we think of God's knowledge, you should not primarily think of God's knowledge as God's looking all around and he's listening into your thoughts and he's looking and he's counting hairs and he's seeing what's happening in the Middle East. He's watching what's happening over there in Russia. The Bible does use language like this, God coming down to see, but that's a language that helps us to understand because that's how we understand coming to know things because that's how we do it. But when the Bible speaks of God's knowledge, it's not like that. God knows all things that are, not because he looks at them when they are, but because he knew them before they ever were. It's his pre-knowledge that brings them into existence, if that makes any sense. If you want a hard term for this, which I'm sure you do, right? Um, this means that God's knowledge is what we call a priori. So that's a Latin phrase used in legal context and others, but a priori. It means God knows before. It's not him looking at it. It's not what we call a posteriori. It's not God learning by looking. There it is, and after the fact, he's looked at it, now he knows. It's not like that with God. God knows everything beforehand. Here's A.W. Tozer in the knowledge of the holy quote, God perfectly knows himself and being the source and author of all things, it follows that he knows all that can be known. You might wonder, what's the purpose of knowing this? <laughs> because it's amazing. Because it's really an amazing thing. And just thinking like this, which is true, it helps us to keep God as God. It helps us not to bring God down to our level. We are the ones who learn. God doesn't learn. It's so impossible for God to learn. This was the point at the end of the book of Job where Job wanted to counsel God. <laughs> he said, God, listen, you're misunderstanding God. You're doing something wrong. If my life is so hard, if you have allowed these horrible things to happen, Job is saying, in my life, if you've allowed me a flat tire on the way to, work, or to church today, which has happened to us, that God, if you allow that to happen, 
then I need to counsel you. I need to tell you. I need to inform you, like, God, you must not understand, like, our life's already hard. Our other vehicle exploded last week, so we need this van. So, God, you must not have known that, you know. So let me just pray to you, God, and inform you of this and give you some counsel. Like, you did your best, but you just missed a few things. Knowing that God's knowledge, it's not just that he sees everything and knows. It's a priori. It's the only reason things exist is because he already knew them puts us in our place. It helps to keep us humble. It teaches us the lesson of Job, hopefully without the whirlwind, where we can simply say, God knows all things more profoundly than I know anything. Because everything I know, I learn. God knew everything before it even was. Keeps us humble in that way. So that's the foundation of God's knowledge, his omniscience. It's because he knows himself. But let's move now into the biblical evidence for the extent of God's knowledge. What does God's knowledge look like? What are some other things we learn about his knowledge in the Bible? You saw that Grudem's definition, it began by saying God knows himself. So that's what we just talked about. Then Grudem, very reasonably, moves on and says God knows himself and, or we could say because of that, God knows all things actual and possible. That's what Grudem says. There's a reason for saying it that way. Let's begin by just talking about God's knowledge of everything that's actual. That means everything that's real, everything that actually is. Nothing, not a theory, but what really is. Here's Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me then when you wonder, none like him, how? How is God different from the idols and the false gods and our false ideas of God? How is he different? There are many ways, but this is the way he gives in this passage, Isaiah 46. He says, there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. How does he know it if they're not yet done? Say, well, he looks into the future. No, actually, not even that. He looks into himself. <laughs> it's a part of his purpose. He knows what's coming because he purposes in some way the things that come to pass. And you see that even here because he says, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So do you see what we just talked about in that? He says, there's no one like me. From the past, I tell you what's coming in the future, and this is why, because my purpose will stand. And in this case, he's talking about bringing destruction to his people. He is going to bring destruction as a judgment to his people from a foreign nation that's pagan and does not know God. So even there, you have the problem of evil. How does that work with God's purpose when there's evil being accomplished? It's the depths of God. We don't fully know, but we can't deny it because that's what he's saying in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. The reason God can declare the future, actual things that will come to pass in the future, is because his purpose will stand. He knows it by knowing himself. Now, God's knowledge of the future is one of the most important characteristics he presents to us of himself when it comes to his knowledge. In the Old Testament, prophecy is everywhere. And prophecy isn't always telling the future. Sometimes it's a forthtelling. It's declaring God's present perspective on something. But often, prophecy is foretelling the future. 
There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are perfectly fulfilled in the New. There are many other prophecies in Old and New Testament that will be fulfilled in the future. And God is the one who reveals these things because he knows them in his purpose. You might think it's hardly worth even talking more about this. If you believe the Bible, you believe God knows the future, right? Yes. Unfortunately, this is a tact today. It's actually um, a way of thinking popular, thankfully not in our circles, but growing in popularity, and it's called open theism. And basically, open theism is a teaching that God knows everything that can be known, but the future can't be known. So it denies that God knows the future. I say the only unknowable thing is not the future. It's how anyone could come to that conclusion. <laughs> That's utterly unknowable to me if you read the Bible. I mean, it's just everywhere, so... I don't imagine that's a danger you fall into, but just so you know, we have to affirm that God knows the actual future, and he knows it completely. What about the present and the past as well? Because that's another part of God's knowledge of actual things. Here's Daniel 2.22. Daniel says, God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And that is a metaphor that Daniel is using to express that God knows things that even you and I can't come to know. If something's in the darkness, all we've got here is sight. We can't see it. You turn all the lights off, I can't see anything. I don't know what's going on here. He says, but God knows what's in the darkness. This is reinforced in Psalm 139, verse 11, in a beautiful way. The psalmist says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. It's just another way of using that metaphor to say, wherever God looks on the earth, of course, he knows everything. He already knew it in his purpose. He knows all things, even if it's in darkness, even if we try to hide it, even if it's nothing but a thought in our heart that we don't tell anyone. It's dark to you. I have a thought, and I don't tell you right now, so I'm thinking of something right now. You don't know what it is. It's in my mind. You don't know what it is. It was a candy cane. But how would you ever know that? <laughs> but the moment I thought of that, that was darkness to you, but that was bright as the light to God. It's as if I had yelled, candy cane, and now you know it. God knew it in that way. He already knew it fully. Hebrews 4.13 is um, a very wonderful, terrifying text. It says, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Naked and exposed. Adam and Eve, they sinned, and they went to hide behind trees in the garden. And <laughs> like little children with the foot sticking out, like, you're not really hiding. They think when they cover their eyes, you can't see them anymore by some odd logic. And that's how we are before God when we're like Adam and Eve hiding in our sin, thinking God doesn't know. Surely God doesn't know. God does know. God knows all things that are actual, presently, in the past, in the future. But God also knows, just as a side note so you're aware, God also knows all things possible. So these are things that don't even happen but could happen. Now again, if you say, how do we know this? There's biblical evidence for this. There's one time where David is hiding in a city and Saul's trying to get him and David asks God, he prays and says, God, if I stay in this city, 
Will the people of Keilah, will they deliver me over to Saul if I stay here? And God says, yes, they will. So he runs away. So it never happened. They never delivered him over to Saul, but he knew, God knew, if you'd stay there, it will. God knows possible things. Again, this is because God knows himself. The only possible things are things that God is powerful enough to do. God knows his own power. Therefore, he knows the extent of what he can do. <laughs> all things. So God knows all things possible. You say, why does that matter? Again, it's more a matter of worship. I think today there is such a fascination, and it's fine. There is a real fascination that trickles down from the scientific community to a popular level with the multiverse, right? I think the most recent Spider-Man was like that or something, right? So the idea of a multiverse, that there are multiple universes, part of that, anyways, we won't get into it. Part of that is to defend a sort of Darwinian evolutionary improbability. But it is an interesting thought. And I, you know, did God make other universes? Sure, he could. Probably he didn't. Sure, he could. Whatever. But that idea of multiverses, what's fascinating about it is the different possibilities. Like if this changed just a little bit, then what would have happened here? If this changed just a little bit, what would have happened here? So even you and I made in God's image can imagine different possibilities. God knows all the possibilities, which is a part of his wisdom when he brings things about. So there's nothing you can tell him like, have you considered what would happen if you did this? God's like, I considered that before you existed. <laughs> like, of course, he knows all things possible. The very last part of this definition now, God knows himself. And knowing himself, he knows all things actual and possible. And he knows all things actual and possible by one simple and eternal act. What does that mean? It means what we've already said. It means God doesn't, but more than that, it's that God cannot learn anything. He knows everything by one simple eternal act. Here's Isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14, and this is quoted in the New Testament. The question is offered, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And you remember the spirit searches the depths of God. So who has looked at the spirit who knows the depths of God and who's measured? Got out your tape measure, Roop, this big. You know, who's measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Again, okay, you're gonna, what are you going to teach God? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand when God was creating the human nervous system? I'm not sure what to, what should, should I connect that to that? Let me go ask somebody. Who's he going to ask? <laughs> An angel, you know? Like, who, who did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? That's what Job tried to do. Like, God, let me show you what's just. Uh, no. Who taught him knowledge? This is uh, the, college major, the college philosophy major when you get in that first year and you have your first philosophy courses and all of a sudden you know all knowledge. <laughs> you don't. You're just confused and saying stuff, you know. Or the teenager who all of a sudden knows 10 times more than his parents ever knew. It's amazing, like, just how rapid that development is. But saying, here, us, that's like us teaching God knowledge. God's like, just like the teenager's parents, like, I've been here a long time. I was changing your diapers, you know. I taught you basically everything you know, and now you know so much more. Anyways, you know the frustrations. But <clears throat> that's like us coming to God, saying like, God, let me teach you. Who taught him knowledge? No one. Who showed him the way of understanding? 
no one. God knows all things by one eternal, simple act. We say eternal because, like we said, he always knew all things by knowing himself. So he never learns. We say simple, not in the sense that it's like, oh, it's simple. In the sense there's no steps to it. Like you and I, okay, so if I have an issue at my house, then I got to look at YouTube <laughs> and I got to watch some videos of somebody fixing it and then I got to go try to fix it and fail and then I got to figure out how I failed, go back to YouTube, ask and then finally ask one of you and you come fix it. But that's basically, those are the steps of how I fix things in my house. But you see like those are steps that we take to learn and God doesn't take any steps in learning. It's not like one thing he does then another. It's just one simple eternal act. One of the beauties of this for us is that if God's knowledge is one simple and eternal act, you don't have to worry, like children sometimes do when they're praying, say, if so many people are praying, how can God hear my prayer? Is it just like an unopened envelope on a big table of a billion envelopes in God's office? That's how prayer can feel, and you're thinking about that. But if God knows all things by one eternal simple act, that means he has a what we'd call an infinite broadband, you know, there's no limitation to what he can be thinking about. And all things that he thinks about, there's no decay of the memory of them. There's no sense that God's forgotten something. The Bible talks about God remembering, but again, that's to help us, not him. He knows all things all the time, no forgetfulness at all. That means that when we pray to God or when you're going through difficulty, it's Better to compare it not to a parent with a bunch of children, like, oh, try to help you, you know, let you cry, got to come help you. It's not like that with God. It's as if it was one child here and complete full attention always. That's the way God relates to you in your difficulties. Here's A.W. Pink in his book, The Attributes of God, quote, there is no danger of the individual saint being overlooked amidst the multitude of supplicants who daily and hourly present their various petitions. For an infinite mind is as capable of paying the same attention to millions as if only one individual were seeking its attention. So praise God for that. So that's the knowledge or the omniscience of God. Now, what I want to do now is briefly turn to how that applies. I've applied it in a few ways, and as I hope you've seen, there are a lot of comforts that we derive from the knowledge of God. One we haven't even mentioned is when you're misunderstood, when you're misunderstood, and that's a painful feeling, and you can't convince the other person, hey, you misunderstood me. They say, I understood you perfectly. <laughs> no, you really didn't, but there's no way to prove it, right? You can entrust that to God. He understands. He knows. But the one way I want to apply this more specifically to us, so there's a lot of comforts, is I want to apply it by way of warning. God's knowledge, your integrity. Integrity means you doing the right thing when no one's around to see it. But Christian integrity actually means you doing the right thing when no one except God is around to see it. So really for the Christian, there's nothing you ever do where no one's around to see it. The Bible speaks of this and we borrow a Latin term for this. And if you know R.C. Sproul's ministry, he liked this term a lot. Corum Deo. It's just Latin for before God. 
And even in my Old Testament Bible reading right now, going through, before the Lord, before the presence of the Lord, before the eyes of the Lord. If you try to underline all of that in your Old Testament, it'll be everywhere. It's everywhere. Because what we do is before the Lord. You live your life in front of the Lord. It's because he knows all things. He knows everything you do. He knows everything you think. The psalmist says, before the words on my tongue. <laughs> so if you just counted the words on your tongue and Jesus says, you'll give an account for every idle word and you're like, <gasps> you think, well, you give an account for the idle words you don't even say. Christian integrity. We live our lives in front of God. The best example of this in the Bible is the story of Achan. When the people went into the promised land and went to Jericho, the first city they were to conquer, and God told them, Devote everything to destruction. Don't keep anything. And Achan, he saw some gold. He saw a mantle. He took it. He buried it under the dirt in his tent. And there's half a million people in Israel. He's one. And he thinks nobody's going to know. He would have been right if God was not a God of all knowledge. So God causes the people to be defeated at Ai and explains someone has broken the ban. And if you remember the story with Achan, it's a wonderful picture of us. What scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. Because God knows everything, you remember the story, it says that they cast lots. So whatever that meant for them, drawing straws type thing or casting something. So to us, what seems a random process, but it was God guiding it. And it says they brought the tribe of Judah. And you just think of yourself as Achan there, you know, so you did your sin and you told nobody. You think, whew, I'm good. Nobody knows, you know. Those things I'm thinking, those things I'm allowing in my mind, I'm not fighting them anymore. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. That thing I did, you know, nobody knows. It says, they cast a lot, and it's the tribe of Judah. And Achan thinks, lucky guess. <laughs> lucky guess. Lucky guess. And they cast a lot again. It's the clan of the Zerahites, his clan. All right, you know, beads of sweat start forming. They cast a lot again. It's the household of Zabdi. It's his household. And they cast a lot again and it's Achan. Numbers 32 says, be sure your sin will find you out. That's a terror if you don't know God. You're not going to pretend to be a good person. You can trick everybody else. God knows. You need to run to Christ. But even for those of us who do know God, it's not meant to be a terror, but it's meant to give us a healthy, holy fear of God that produces integrity in us. You're going to go this week, and you're going to have so many opportunities to think to say and to do wrong things. And many of them, you can keep secret from me. You know, I'm the pastor. Be on your best behavior when I come over or whatever, you know. You can keep it secret from other people here on Sundays. You can keep it secret from your spouse. You can keep it secret from your friends. You can go and do the sin and keep a secret from basically every human on earth. But the Bible's really clear. God knows. God knows. What this produces in us is a sense of accountability, that there's nothing we do without God seeing it, without God being aware, and this produces in us an integrity so that our secret lives come more and more to look like our public lives. Returning to Gabe then, Gabe is in the break room at work, and in walks this female coworker. Gabe knows he's let this go on too long. He knows it's gone too far in his heart. And one of the ways he knows this is that when she walks in, it's the highlight of his day. Everything brightens. She sits down. They start to talk just like they usually do during lunch. But something's off. She notices Gabe's not exactly himself. 
He's stumbling over his words. He's having a hard time looking her in the eye. What's going on here? He finishes his lunch pretty quickly to say, I got to go, and he leaves. What has gotten into Gabe? It is not that he thinks his wife Sierra has found out. She hasn't. There's no evidence. He's not done anything. It's not even that he thinks this female coworker knows. Maybe he's been more friendly to her, but he's not said anything. That's not what makes him nervous. This is entirely an inward struggle. And the struggle starts right here that last Sunday, Gabe was at church, and there's a sermon series they're going through at their church on Joshua. And they were in Joshua 7, and it was the story of Achan. And you try to be Gabe sitting there listening to this sermon be preached as the lot comes closer and closer and closer and on to the person. And Gabe knew throughout that entire sermon, God means this message for me. It was like everything was honed in on him. No one around him knew it. Gabe knew it. And as he was there on that Sunday, it was the same preacher who had married him in Sierra preaching it. And it was as if that preacher could look into his soul. <laughs> You're the man, Achan. The fact that they were in Joshua 7 reminded Gabe that God knew. Sierra didn't know. The pastor didn't know. Church members didn't know. Really, no one knew, but God knew. After this uncomfortable lunch where Gabe is feeling conviction for what he's doing, he drives away. The venue where he got married is nearby, goes to this park, kneels down in the grass, and fully, completely repents before God. He says, you're the God who has seen me. You're the only one who knows this sin. And to you, I repent for letting it go this far. Is there hope for Gabe? Because God is an all-knowing God, there is hope for Gabe. Let's pray. Lord, you have searched us and known us. You know our way, even from afar. You know when we stand up and when we sit down. If we were to take the wings of the morning and go to the uttermost part of the sea, we would find you there. You would know we are there. If we were to take the boat with Jonah from Joppa and go into the hold, into the bottom part of the ship and fall asleep in a deep way, even there, it would be evident that you know and you would hurl the wind upon the sea and wake us up, even by a pagan captain, because you are a God who knows. Like Hagar said, you are the God who sees me. And that is for us a cause of righteous, holy fear that we can't get away with things. But God, Scripture also says, you know our frame, that we're made out of dust. You know our weakness. Those of us who are truly yours, you know that we struggle with temptations. Gabe's not alone in struggling with temptation. You know that we are weak. You know the depths, not just of yourself, but of us. And that is a scary thought. But your knowledge is coupled with your love and your mercy. You say that if we will walk in the light before you openly and not trying to hide in a darkness that's bright as day to you, you forgive us and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No one teaches you wisdom. You know the way to wisdom and the path of justice. You alone knew and know 
the manner in which we can be made right with you despite our secret sins. And that is through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you know if we have trusted in him. So we cast ourselves upon you and we thank you for knowing us that deeply and truly and loving us nonetheless. Lord, please help us to live our lives responding in integrity, living our lives before your face. It's in Christ's name we pray.